Good morning. Wrapping up another year, aren't we? This is the time of year I think I need to contemplate. Think about last year, think about the year ahead, and it was a real reminder to me because before I left for a vacation, my boss walked up to my cubicle, his name's Alex, and uh, he said, you know what we're going to do Monday is we're going to give you eight hours to write down your goals for the year. And anybody that doesn't have it done is going to be fired. <laughs> I know my boss pretty well and we're in a good relationship, so I know he was just sort of emphasizing that he really wants that done. But then he says, and those goals, I'm going to hold you accountable to those goals, all the instructors. So I said, oh, that's a good idea. That means you're going to be accountable too. And he goes, what? I go, yeah. So we make goals, and you're going to be responsible to provide us with the time and the resources to meet those goals. Well, well, well that's why I'm having you write them down, you know? <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. Time and resources to meet our goals. So I'm wondering this morning if you have taken time to consider. I mean, the reason why I like this particular Sunday is we still have two full days before the new year comes in. So there's time to set aside to contemplate what do you want to see accomplished in 2014? You know, just what goals will you make? You have time to think about it. Now there's no excuse. I'm going to bring it to your attention right now. Goals, goals. The, I have a title from it, my, my message. Usually I don't. Are we going to drop the screen? Or it's over here. Oh, there we go. There we go. Goals under attack. I don't usually have a title for my message, but I thought I'd surprise everybody and put one down there. Because we do have an enemy, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Okay, so goals, goals. Now, there's just regular old goals. When I go to work, I'm going to make goals, you know, about my work, what I want to see accomplished in training, materials, mock-ups, and so on. Might have goals at home, things that need to be fixed. I have to finish the bathroom. That sort of <laughs> sprung a leak upstairs, and so I had to tear out the floor. So I'm in the middle of that project. Uh, and I'll come back to that. But what I'm talking about is spiritual goals. Spiritual goals. They're more important than any mundane, practical, physical goals that we can think of. Way more important. And we need to start thinking like that because this is just another year passed by. And I was just talking. We, were, we had lunch over a couple of Brazilians with a couple, two couples from Brazil that we knew in Brazil, and one of them mentioned, you know, we're getting old enough to when we think, like last year, it was really 10 years ago. You know, when you get older, you start thinking, oh, yeah, remember, that was 10 years ago. That was 15 years ago. Wow, that wasn't yesterday. So before we know it, life's going to be over. And, and, and when life is over, all those mundane, I'm not going to care what goals I make with my boss come tomorrow or Tuesday, you know, at the end of my life. That's not going to matter. What's going to matter is my spiritual condition before God. What's going to matter is what I have to look forward to in eternity. And so that's what I want us to consider this morning. And we're going to consider that we have our goals under attack once we start identifying what our goals should be. One thing I want to point out this morning is that when you make spiritual goals, it's a little bit different than my goals at work. I told my boss, you're going to have to provide the time and the resources to accomplish those goals that I set out. 
Well, if you align your goals with the will of God, it is guaranteed you will not lack the time nor the resources to accomplish those goals if they're in the center of God's will for your life. And some of them are obvious. Uh, some of them are clear. Uh, they should be the same goal to, ob- to all of us, to know the Word of God. That should be a spiritual goal of all Christians, all that know the Lord. And you will not lack the time nor the resources. Now, if you take something else and slip it in there, and they, oh, I don't have time for this. You know, no, not, that doesn't work with God. He gave you the time. You just squandered it on something else. Same thing with resources. He gives the time and the resources to accomplish the goals he has for your life. And he has a purpose for your life, a very wonderful purpose for your life. And it's different for each one of us. Time and resources never lack. One thing's for sure about goals, and you've probably heard it before, but it, 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 it's true nonetheless. When it comes to goals, if you aim at nothing, you're sure to hit it. No goals means accomplishing no goals. But goals are something that very few people sit down to write down. They say the most successful people are those that write down those goals. They have a list, a to-do list. And it comes up quite frequently. And they work on it. And therefore, they accomplish things. So we want to think of a to-do list in, in spiritual, with spiritual values. Okay, first thing off the top of my head, let's go to the next slide. Do you know the Lord? Do you have a personal relationship with the Lord? Do you know Him? Some of you here this morning do. Some of you don't. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you may not have a clue. It's like describing a color to a person that's been born blind. Pretty difficult. Pretty difficult. Knowing the Lord. I can only describe it the way the Scripture describes it. But you won't know what I'm talking about until you enter into that personal relationship. It's knowing the one that made you. It's knowing that he loves you. Knowing that he died for you. Knowing that you're a sinner not deserving his love, but knowing he loved you anyway. And he sent the Lord Jesus Christ down to earth. God came to earth to die for you and to die for me on the cross, thus paying the penalty of all our sins. Now that might be something you've heard before, But it's a free gift that God offers, eternal life, forgiveness for your sins, a life of joy that leads all the way into eternity. And and, and I can't even describe how far it goes after that, you know, eternity, eternity. I remember the day I accepted the Lord. Do you want to accept the Lord Jesus Christ? And I knew he died for my sins. And I knew it was him speaking to me that day in my heart. And I had... One thought, stray thought, like the enemy of my soul came in and said, well, what if he makes you go to Africa, wear a grass skirt, and tell everybody about Jesus? You know? And then, of course, like, uh, yeah, that, well, that wouldn't be fun. And then, and then another voice on this saying, hello, Eric, wake up. We're talking eternity here. Heaven? And I thought, yeah, no, that's a no-brainer, right? No-brainer. Knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing your Creator, There's a very precious verse in Scripture. You can read it up here. I'll read it down here. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. That's God's promise to you. That's God's promise to everyone. 
You seek me with all your heart, and you will find me. I will be found by you. He'll make sure you find him <laughs> if you seek him with all your heart. And so a spiritual goal for you, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, is, you know what? That sounds pretty good to me. The promises that I'm hearing of eternal life, forgiveness of my sins, joy that begins now and leads all the way into eternity, fellowship with God, that sounds pretty good to me. Is it worth seeking out? Is it worth making goals toward that end? In 2014, would you like to be able to say that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt I'm going to heaven? That I have eternal life? That no one can take it from me and that nothing else matters anymore? Take it all away. I have eternal life. You can have that. You can have that before 2014. Is it worth making a goal about? Here's another precious um, verse. The next one is Hebrews 11:6. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God, you can come to God, you know, must believe that he is. There's some people that say, I don't believe in God. To me, it's like, wow, with all the evidence out there, you don't believe in God? That's scary. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Imagine that. What would you give for a reward from God? Think of how he could reward you. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What does that mean? That's a poetic way of saying he owns everything. He owns the earth. He owns all the gold in the earth. Gold doesn't mean he paves the streets of heaven with gold. They mean nothing to him. He's a rewarder of those who seek him. Faith pleases God. So, is that worth making goals about? I would say if I didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ and I was thinking in my right mind, I'd say, you know what? That's worth going after. Worth going after. So, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I commend you because you're here this morning. And don't think that doesn't go unnoticed by God. He sees you here this morning. He sees you for one reason or another. He loves you. But he sees that you made some effort to come here this morning to hear his word. That's the starting point. But that's worth making a goal. I want to do that more. I want to come back and hear the word of God some more. I want to start reading the word of God. Write it down as a goal. Every day I want to spend five minutes and I'm going to pray, God, I want to find you. I want to seek you. And I'm showing it by reading your word. You don't think he'll honor that? Says in his word, he will. He's a rewarder of those that seek him. Seek him with all your heart and he will be found by you. So that's a real practical goal. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you know someone that does, spend some time with them. Ask questions. You know, I'm surprised how many people have questions about God that go unasked. Think about that. Do you have any questions about God? There are so many misconceptions out there about God. So many wrong ideas. And very few people do the asking. Hey, is God really like that? You say you know God. Is he like that? And, and you always want to preface that with, show it to me in the word. Show it to me in God's word. Don't just take someone's word for it. Show me it right here. 
Because this is God's word. This is gospel truth right here. So you want to see it, okay? So practical goals. How am I going to make a practical goal that can, you know, lead to the end, that end of knowing God? Spend time in the word of God. Spend time with those that know God. Make it, your, uh, make it a goal to hear the word of God on a regular basis. And you're, you're going to find that you're going to have some thoughts come into your head like, wow, I really do want to know God. What's keeping me from knowing God? And then God will start taking your thoughts there. Goals, goals for those that don't know the Lord. What about those that are here this morning that do know the Lord? What goals can we make? I was uh, with my son. We were watching some videos the other day. Actually, it was yesterday. And it was about free climbers. Anybody knows what free climbers are? Free climbers are those that climb without the use of, you know, safety apparatus like... um, Stakes they drive into the mountain, uh, carabiners, pitons, and all those other words that I don't even know what they are, but they don't have a lot of ropes, no ropes. And you see what these people go through and the challenge they set up for themselves. And here's one fellow that was, at this point he was nominated, later won in 2012 the National Geographic Adventure of the Year Award. His name's David Lama, and they interviewed him. It was interesting. I thought it was made, made a good quote. He's Austrian. He's a free climber. And uh, they asked him this question. Why do you think National Geographic nominated, nominated you for their Adventure of the Year award? And the most obvious answer would be my success, he says, being the first free climbing ascent of Cerro Tohi after three years of trying. So there's this mountain I mean, it's Snowcapped Mountain. Three years of trying, he finally made it. Free climbing. No ropes, none of that stuff. Free climbing. So he said, well, maybe that's the obvious reason. But personally, this is interesting. Personally, I believe it's because of the dream that I've been living for more than half my life. I wasn't even a teenager when I found out what I wanted to dedicate my life, uh, that I wanted to dedicate my life to climbing. And basically, ever since, I've been living the dream and the adventure is far from over. He decided at a young age, that's what I want to dedicate my life to, climbing. Climbing. And he's just on the way. If that isn't a challenge to me as a Christian, climbing. Because when you come to know the Lord as your personal Savior and the Lord of your life, that's only the beginning. That's the beginning of climbing. Climbing to heights that you never imagined before in knowing the Lord. Taking you down paths that you never expected before. What would it be like getting to know God? That's the Christian life. And it takes effort. takes discipline. takes hard work. takes self-denial. Sometimes it takes suffering. But there's joys untold, and we're going to read about them. Paul puts them forth here in the next slide. It's a long one, but I'll let you read it while I read it. Uh, I was hoping it would be on the big screen. Paul said, I count, it, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. All things to be lost. I don't, I don't know what goals you have, what aspirations, what dreams what possessions, what holdings, what investments you have. Paul considered them to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. 
The value of knowing Christ was way above all that he could ever accumulate as far as status, as far as religious prestige, as far as worldly possessions, anything. And you might ask yourself, wow, well, what does that mean? That means that's how much, how, how grand it is to know God. How great it is to know God. He says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count that but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It's one thing to say, oh yeah, I would do that. I would give up everything to know Christ in a deeper way. That's real easy to say. He did it. He gave up all things for that. And he didn't give it a second thought. It was joy for him to offer it up. We're talking about scaling heights that are far beyond what we know personally. But not, not that we shouldn't aspire to it. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He knew the way to God wasn't through good works, wasn't through his own self-righteousness and righteous acts, wasn't through religiosity. It was through Christ Jesus. It was through his righteousness. It was him dying on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, so that God might give us his righteousness, clothe us with his righteousness so that we could be pure in God's sight and given to us as a free gift. That's what he wanted to be found possessing, the free gift of eternal life, not all this good works. And a lot of people have that wrong out there. I mean, I talk to people that they'll even know the words, but if you question them, they'll fall back on, oh, and I'm not that bad. Oh, and I try to go to church every year, Easter and Sundays, you know. Oh, my friend's a priest. There's a lot of answers given that really show that a person is somewhat depending on their merit because of what they've done, perhaps who they are. None of that makes a person right before God. The only thing that makes a person right is the Lord Jesus Christ and to be found in him. And Paul was found in him. And he goes on to say, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Well, that's a that's pretty hard saying, isn't it? He wanted to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted to know the God that came down from heaven to die in his place because he loved him so much. He wanted to know that kind of love. He wanted to follow Christ. And now, there are people here that have suffered in their lives a lot more than I have. I don't even consider myself having suffered. But when I go through an experience that perhaps is uncomfortable or fearful, I think of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's nothing he can't relate to. There's no difficulty that I can go through that he can't relate to. That I can't point to him and say, he understands. He has the answer. And I start understanding what he went through in a very small way in his love for me. And all the difficulties in this life seem to become less significant when I have my eyes on the cross, what he's done for me. Paul wanted to enter into that fellowship, to know that, to experience a little bit of what was in the heart of God, even if it meant suffering. And if you're a parent... 
here this morning, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The self-sacrifice that you have lived through throughout the years out of love for your children. And of course, it begins at childbirth for the mothers here. That's love. That's love. Paul wanted to know that. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and, as if, and if any of you, if any, and if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. That's what I like about Paul. He arrived at, at what I would think would be the summit, the top. And he says, I'm not done yet. I'm, I'm keeping on going. going. I, haven't, I haven't got there yet. I press on. You know, and I know what it is to give up. I know what it is to become weary. I know what it is to not want to go ahead. But this is the heart of Paul. This is the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the heart of God. Press on for the Christian. So you might ask yourself, well, how can I make goals? How can I make goals that would help me press on, to help me arrive at heights that I didn't know before? That should be our goal and aspiration. You know, I remember when I was a new Christian, um, and I, I just, I wanted to go all out for the Lord. And I remember people, mature Christians, tell me, you know what? It's easy to take off like a rocket in a blaze of glory. Make sure you don't peter out before you get too high, you know? The Christian life is a, it's a marathon. It's a long-distance run. And that's something I didn't realize at first. You know, it takes endurance. And so what you find oftentimes is the tendency to want to sit on the sidelines a while and rest in the climb. Perhaps find a plateau and park yourself there and rest, thinking it'll just be a little while, just a little rest, and I'll start climbing again. And pretty soon, one year goes by, another year goes by, five years, ten years, and you find, I haven't gone anywhere in my Christian life. I've plateaued out. I've rested too long. Well, God's challenging us, I believe, this year and this morning to, hey, let's start climbing. Let's make some goals. Some of those goals maybe need to be remade that you've made before and you've accomplished before. You know, I, I, <laughs> I've been pretty busy, and so one thing that... Uh, tends to get sacrificed when I get really busy, especially when the floor needs repairing and plumbing needs fixing, is I, I don't go to the gym as I should, you know. So I started going back um, yesterday, and I don't mind telling you, I was really sore this morning. <laughs> I have to take a couple steps backwards, and I have to redo, recover ground that I had lost. And sometimes as a Christian, we have to do that. We start off as a Christian memorizing Scripture. When was the last time you memorized Scripture? We start off as a Christian with the goal, I'm going to read my Bible every day. Get through the Bible in a year. And sometimes life gets busy, and that gets sacrificed. 
So we have to go back, regroup, and start on those goals again. There's nothing wrong with that. That whole thing is getting going, getting started. But we want to we remember, remember our study in Ephesians, we have an enemy of our soul. And we know that his, his, we're not uh, unmindful of his schemes, right? He has a strategy. And before we put the next, well, we can put the next slide up. I think it's a question. It's a question I want to propose to you. What would you say is Satan's most effective strategy in keeping anyone from God's purpose in their life? Think about that. Satan's most effective strategy to keep anyone, you, anyone here, from God's purpose in their life. I don't care if you know him or you don't know him, if you're a Christian or not a Christian. I don't care how mature you are or how much of a newborn Christian you are. What do you think is Satan's most effective strategy in keeping you from God's purpose in your life? Put up the next slide and we'll have it. This is what I believe it is, distractions, distractions. I think everything can be boiled down into a distraction. Whether it's an ailment that I have that's distracting me, whether it's something I'm looking at and going after, we're going we're gonna to look at some distractions in the scriptures and see if they can't help us. The word distraction take, uh, comes from one of um, the, the, the portions that I'm going to read a little bit later. It's only found once in the New American Standard Bible. I think in the New King James as well. Uh, it's a Greek word. I'm not even going to pretend to pronounce it. I'll just say what it means. It means to draw away. It means to draw away. Somebody's going down a path and you're drawing them away. Okay? So that's what a distraction is. It draws you away. And so there's many things that can be considered legitimate pursuits that can draw us away from the more important, the spiritual Pursuit of God and doing His will in our life. So we want to look at some of those um, distractions that Satan uses. Distractions that Satan uses. One of my favorite portions of the, the Bible, and if you've heard me speak before, you've probably heard this several times, so I'm not going to read the whole, the whole chapter, but just portions of it, John chapter 4. But we're going to look at a different emphasis here. John chapter 4, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. I'm in verse 6 now, John 4 verse 6. Now Samaria, the, the Jews of the time, they didn't like to even set foot on the Samaritan soil. So Jesus had a very specific reason for going there. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which would be, um, I want to say noontime. Thank you, Samuel. <laughs> I like that nod. <laughs> it's about noontime, and he was there, and there uh, came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. So here... He had gone to Samaria for the, for the reason of reaching not just this woman, but other people in the city to offer them forgiveness of their sins, salvation. And you could see it played out in the story. We're not going to read it all, but my point is, where did the disciples go? They went into the city to get food. That's a legitimate concern, isn't it? The Lord Jesus, he was hungry. They were hungry. Very practical concern. And so... We can find that you can be distracted by things that are legitimate, 
And when I think of food, I think of necessities. I think for guys, oftentimes, our jobs can be a distraction. Our jobs can be a distraction. They can become so important to us because, after all, it's a necessity. We have to, we have to supply the needs of our family, right? We can also um, help others out. It makes us feel good because we're productive. But it can be distraction away from the things of God. And it doesn't take too much discernment to see when a person's distracted by their job because it takes the place of God in their life. And the things that they previously dedicated themselves to that was evident to all have gone by the wayside. They've been distracted. Satan's very effective in distracting people. Food, necessities. Okay, I have a need to go to school. If you're a student, need to study. That's legitimate. <laughs> These are legitimate concerns. But when they become a distraction away from the things that God wants you to concentrate on, they become an enemy of your soul. Satan uses that. Distracts us away from that which is more important, more crucial. I remember when I got saved, the moment I got saved, I thought, well, I was studying engineering. I thought, I don't have to finish school. What, what, what? Yeah, why? Because I'm going to heaven. That's what's important. doesn't matter what I do. No, God wanted me to continue at that time. So I continued for another two years before the Lord showed me he wanted me to go out to the mission field, and I changed directions then. The whole thing was doing God's will. Nothing else is important. Because if God wants me to do this, and I think this is important, which one's the enemy of my soul? You see? What job I get? I came back from the mission field, and I just prayed for a job, and God gave me a job as a glazer, working with my hands. Well, I know how to work with my hands. I like working with my hands. But it provided for my family. Didn't matter what I did because I had opportunity to witness, to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see in this story. Opportunities to witness. That was more important than me having an office job where I wouldn't be able to witness to a lot of people. I was out in the harsh environment, in the cold and in the heat, hanging from the side of buildings, talking to people about the Lord. I'd rather be there talking about the Lord than somewhere comfortable not talking about the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean you can't share the Lord in an office. You can but if it's going to distract you from sharing the Lord, if going to school and I'm doing all my studies, I had this one friend in school, his name was Mike Trueblood. And I was involved in campus Bible studies. I was in, involved with witnessing on campus because I was a new Christian. And he had known the, Christian, uh, known the Lord for a while. And he was the only guy in class that got 100 on every test, every quiz. He answered every question. And, you know, sometimes you'd get the odd questions that you'd have to do. He'd do the odds and the evens. And he'd have the right answers for all of them. And he was a Christian. And so we went back and forth. I felt the Lord called me to sacrifice an A and get a B so that I could spend time witnessing. And he felt the Lord wanted him to concentrate on getting straight A's and be a testimony that way. I can't say that wasn't God's will for his life. I was glad that if someone get, get, was getting straight A's, it was a Christian doing it. <laughs> you know? It's not for me to say what's a distraction in his life, but for me, it would have been a distraction. And when you saw the direction of my life that the Lord sent us to Brazil, you could see the wisdom of that. God picked the right person for the right job on that end of it. 
It would have been a distraction for me. And who knows if living my life the way I live would have been a distraction for him. So the idea is not to let the necessities of life, the legitimate concerns, become a distraction to keep us from doing God's will. We see here that they went into the city for food, right? In verse 27, jump to 27, because the Lord really revealed himself to this woman in such a way that she just left her water pot there. She went running into the city to tell everybody who she met. And here, here's in verse 27, at this point his disciples came, and they marveled they had been speaking with the woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So here's, an, here's something that really surprised him. Wow, he's speaking to a woman, she's a Samaritan woman, and it's a public place, and he's the son of God? But nobody asked him, hey, what are you looking for to her? And the Lord, Lord why, are you, why are you speaking? What, what's this all about? They didn't even ask. Their perception was so dull, it just, oh, hmm. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Well, she knew. Then they went out to the city and were coming to him. In the meantime, the disciples were requesting him, Rabbi, eat. So where was their mind? <laughs> hey, man, let's eat. Get some food here. What was that woman? Oh, who cares? Let's eat. <laughs> you know? The spiritual um, side of things faded in significance to the mundane, eating. Well, the Lord Jesus puts things in proper perspective here. He says, he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. That probably got them to think, like, what? Somebody give him something to eat? <laughs> Disciples, therefore, were saying to them, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That was something the Lord, he longed to do that. It was more important to him than eating. Even on another occasion, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights because it's God's will. That's more important. Now, it's hard for us to imagine that. We think, well, I got to eat, Right? I got to live. Remember Bill McDonald quoted somebody and saying, well, I don't grant that. God doesn't grant that. To do God's will is more important. And he says, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they're white for harvest. And I imagine as they lifted up their eyes, they were seeing this entourage of men and women coming from the city that the woman from the well, from Sychar, she went and fetched them. <laughs> Come and see a man who told me everything I did. This couldn't be the crisis, could it? And so here they're coming out from the city to where he was. And he was as if he was saying, this is why I came here. This is why I stopped at the well. You know, while you guys were off getting food, this is what was more important. Now, what was, the, was it wrong for them to go get food for the Lord and for themselves? No, it wasn't. But what could have they been doing while they went to get food? That's the key. They were distracted away from the more important spiritual matters. There were people in that city that didn't know the Lord, that were ready to know the Lord, that were ripe to hear about the Lord. And who knows what went through their mind? Come on, let's get the food. Well, this is the better price. No, that's the better price. Let's go over here. Let's go over there. Now, don't talk to these people. They're Samaritans. They don't want to hear anyway. They'll reject us. All kinds of reasons why. Distracted. Away from doing that which was on the very heart of God. So we have to be careful. 
Satan uses distractions in our life, and they could be legitimate concerns, legitimate pursuits. I think of a distraction for young people, and that's the pursuit of a, what we call now a soulmate, a life partner, you know, um, guys looking for girls and girls looking for guys. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. God, that, he invented marriage. He, he made both men and women. Um, nothing wrong with uh, being married. There's nothing wrong with having a, a life partner. Life mate, I shouldn't use that word partner. That's like gives the wrong impression in today's day and age. But um, Bad example for us in Scripture is Samson, right? In Judges 13, we read, The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. They were subject to the Philistines. And there was a certain man of Zoah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, for behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines." So here was a deliverer. God had plans for this man. But Satan's very effective. Very effective at um, distractions. It says in Judges 14, 1 through 3, Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, gather for me. As a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samuel said to his father, Get her for me. She looks good to me. Distracted by what he saw and what he imagined. Was it God's will? He was to be the deliverer of Israel, but God... Speaking prophetically in his word, we find he would begin to deliver. He wouldn't finish it. He wouldn't finish it because he'd get his eyes gouged out, his hair cut off. And the only deliverance he could provide was through suicide. That doesn't sound like a happy end. I don't believe that was God's will for his life, God's best for his life. But he was distracted. Satan was very effective. He knew his weak spot. You know, and I want to... I wanna, challenge each one of us this morning. What's your weak spot? In what area is it easy for Satan to distract you? You know? I, 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 if I can give any advice to young people, because I was, believe it or not, young at one time. And I know how it works biblically. How it works biblically is you seek first his kingdom, right? And these things will be added to you. If I go around as a young bachelor seeking for a wife, I don't believe that's the biblical way to do it. I believe I seek his kingdom and his righteousness. I seek to serve the Lord. And in my serving, somewhere along the line, the Lord's going to bring her into the picture. I don't have to worry about it. The Lord's going to bring her into the picture. If I, if I serve the Lord, because if I serve the Lord, he's going to bring me 
if it's his will, and some people do have the gift of being single, but most people don't. Obviously, I don't. He's going to bring someone into the picture that's going to help you serve him more effectively. He'll be a helpmate to you if you're a guy. And if you're a girl, he's going to bring a spiritual leader into your life if you make it your goal to serve God. But if you go around searching and searching, I know somebody that's been searching for over 10 years and still complaining that he doesn't have it. And maybe girls are dissimilar. I don't know. But I will say that if I would give any advice, I'd say serve the Lord undistractedly, and there's the key. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. And you know, the answer, I've seen some people approach it, okay, I'm serving the Lord. Well, I served him now. Where is she? How long have you been serving him? About a month now already. <laughs> you know? I'm sorry, but it's, that's conditional. Uh, you know, I'll serve him for a month and then see how it goes. And if it doesn't, I'm going to be on the hunt again. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. That's a distraction. And Satan knows it's a distraction. And he lures so many people aside. For ineffective service, unfulfilled joy, frustration, year in, year out. And it's because the person's distracted. You know, if God wants you married, he wants you married more than you want you married. <laughs> believe that. I mean, believe it. Because it's the best for you, and God doesn't hold back the best for you. you know? But that could be a distraction for young people. And Samson's the example. Take, uh, take example of that. Moving on. If I can get this page turned. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Next slide uh, shows Matthew 8, 19 and 20. And a certain scribe came to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Here's a big distraction. A distraction of comfort. Comfort. We have what's called our comfort zone. We don't like to get out of our comfort zone. It's funny how we, we think of these phrases and things as time goes by. Same idea, different phrase, okay? We like comfort, don't we? I remember, never forget the time Rick Bellis talked about that. He says, why do you think we put air tires on our cars? You know, springs and shock absorbers. It's because we want to be comfortable. Air conditioning. You know, when I think of our cars, I think, you know, Andy Goodwin, and I oftentimes, I think he was the first one to remind me of this. We travel around in our everyday life better than the the richest kings on earth centuries past. <laughs> you know, they're in a wooden-wheeled cart, chariot kind of thing, or maybe they're carried on the shoulders of some big guys, and we're driving around with shock absorbers, air tires, you know, springs, air conditioning, you know, a little bit too hot. We got, we got independent climate control, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's great. I can remember riding my motorcycle, coming back from witnessing at Chabot College with John Rosenthal, and it was pouring, you know? And, and when we'd get there, we'd take our boots off and empty them out. That's how drenched we were. But on the freeway, we were looking at each other like, bring it on, you know? It's man versus the environment. You know, like you, you pretend you're the, 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 uh, you know, the preachers that used to ride horses back and, and preach the gospel at all the different cities, just braving the elements, you know? There's something to be said about toss and comfort. 
You know, as we get older, and I know what that is, we seek comfort more. But, you know, I don't want to give too much quarter to that, you know, because it's not, it's a distraction. You know, if I seek comfort in things like, oh, you know what, Mike, could you, could you cool that down like one degree for me? It's like, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, you know. What does that mean? Saturn and I were talking about, we've been to Brazil in the Amazon, you know, and she has her story, and I have mine because we went to, she went with a lady, and I went with the guys in the interior. You know, um, three-hour boat ride da, 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 in the equatorial sun. I mean, it, it's hot. And you get there about dusk, and you can't open your mouth because that's the time the mosquito comes out, and the mosquitoes come out in clouds. And they're, they're out for blood, right? You don't want them to get it from your tongue, so you close your mouth. And then you got to walk across a field where your feet sink in four to five inches in mud. And there's thousands of frogs there, so you can't distinguish between the frogs and the mud. And about that time, people are lighting kerosene lamps to keep the mosquitoes out of their huts or houses, you know, wooden shacks, some of them with the grass tops, right? If you go in there, you're going to be gagging. And then we get in canoes and we, you know, in, you know like the, um, the trees that duck out trees. And there's a guy with a kerosene lamp in the front, kerosene lamp in the back, and everything's all dark. And, you're, you know, the trees and, the, you know, the roots coming out from the trees going into the water and things floating in the water. And it's like, wow, this is surreal. Somebody pinched me. I'm dreaming, you know. And they're paddling to this place that they have a meeting hall where they meet to hear the word of God. And you're sort of distracted by other things like the lizard on the guy's back in front of you. You know, and the spider's crawling on the walls. And then when you, you get down on the hardwood floor to pray on the benches and you feel something here and you're going, man, how big is it, you know? And I'm thinking, this is great. They worship just like we do, except for different than we do. And I'm thinking, after you go through that, it's difficult to complain about a couple of degrees on the thermostat. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, you, you go three degrees from the equator and, and when I think hot, I'm thinking it's not that hot yet. Comfort can be an enemy of our souls. It can distract us. You know, I'm up here, you know, opening the Word of God, and if you're worried about a couple of degrees on the thermostat, it's distracting, right? It's distracting. Comfort. And people seek comfort in different ways, you know? I don't want to talk to people about the Lord because it's uncomfortable for me. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Get over it, you know? Just get it out there. Leave it with the Lord after. Do it in a kind and friendly way. And I'm not talking about badgering people. I'm talking about just dropping hints, you know, and see if they get picked up. If they get picked up, take it for as long as you can, you know. I'm not talking about insulting people. I'm talking about find a good, comfortable way of doing it if it makes you uncomfortable, but do it nonetheless. That's why we're here. That's what's on the Lord's heart. Service. And this is where the word came from originally, and you ladies aren't going to like me on this one. But um, remember the lady named Martha? Martha. <laughs> um, she was distracted. She was distracted. What was she distracted by? Her service. She had a lot of service to do for the Lord, and she was distracted. And she said Mary wasn't helping her. Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet. And Martha sort of complained to the Lord, Lord, make her help me. Right? 
And what did the Lord say? She chose the better part, and it's not going to be taken from her. You're distracted by so many things. But just one thing's important. Uh, and, you know, we all interpret it in our own way or apply it our own way. I think well, one thing's important. Just get some food on the table. I don't care what it is. <laughs> you know? But she wanted to do a fabulous dish. Nothing wrong with that. It's a form of worship when you serve the Lord like that. But when you let it distract you from the more important, and it takes you to complaining, that's nah, not good. Okay, distraction. I think of, um, I don't think I'm going to continue with the slides anymore. I'm just going to finish it up. Um, I remember Peter. Remember Peter? How he denied the Lord. And then the Lord restored him. The Lord had effective service for him, which tells me, you know what, you can, you can not only plateau, you can take a nosedive, and the Lord still wants you to get up and keep climbing, because he has use for you, right? So, the Lord said, follow me. That's after he told him by what way he would die. He was indicating that he was going to die a martyr's death. He said, when you were young, you used to gird yourself and go where you want. When you're old, somebody else is going to take you by the hand and take you where you don't want. And it says, he said that signifying by what death he would die, right? And they said, follow me. And you know what Peter did? He looked around and, said, and he saw John. He goes, well, what about him? What about him? And the Lord says, what's that to you? You follow me. And so what does that tell me? You know one big distraction we can get involved in? And that's looking at someone else. What about them? What about them? You're not going to have to answer for them. We're going to have to answer for ourselves. So Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, what's that to you? You follow me. You know, there's a song we used to sing, though no one join me, still I will follow. Knowing the Lord and following the Lord is an individual, personal uh, expedition, let's say. You know, we all have sweet fellowship here, but when it comes down to it, when you're alone at night, alone in the morning, alone at work, the Lord's with you, and He sees your heart, and He knows you. It's a personal experience. One thing I want to close with, and um, Andy and uh, Robert started up a young people thing, um, and there's a fellow that speaks... His name's Tim Keller, and he showed me something that I'd never seen before. I don't know about you, but when I see something I haven't seen before, a spiritual principle from the Word of God, uh, I get excited. Um, not that I think I know everything, but I just get excited because it's something new. The importance of fellowship, fellowship. The important thing is to know the Lord. After that, first act of obedience, what is it? Be baptized, right? Okay, that's an act of obedience, you know, maybe you haven't been baptized. We as elders will not push anybody to be baptized. We will not go after somebody to be baptized. You know, I take someone like Jen, for an example, and Luke. I want to be baptized. Good. That's the Lord speaking. And we're going we're gonna to respond to that. But we're not going to go after and say, you know what? You haven't been baptized. How come? Get us your testimony. <laughs> because we don't want to push somebody into doing something they don't want to do. And if it's not of God... It's certainly not going to be of me. <laughs> I don't want to do that. So baptized. It's, it's really a first act of obedience. And I remember a girl that, got, that, that supposedly was a Christian, and she, for all I know, she was. And I got saved. And three weeks after I got saved, there was an opportunity to get baptized. Of course I want to be baptized, right? 
the Lord died for me, I want to take his name publicly. And so she was from a Lutheran background, and her parents were giving her a a bad time, so she decided she wasn't going to get baptized. And I saw her probably a couple weeks after that, never saw her again. And I was surrounded by young people that were just eager to serve the Lord and follow the Lord. And she seemed that way too. Up until that one step, first act of obedience she balked at. And I got a feeling it marked the rest of her Christian life if she knew the Lord. Important. But after that, coming into fellowship. There are people here that have committed themselves to fellowship here. There are people that haven't. And some perhaps because they don't know what it's about. Some because they've been given the offer, they just haven't responded. But I had a new look about fellowship, a new view of fellowship through Tim Keller. And this is the way he explained it. And it's interesting. Take it to heart. It's, it's very cool and interesting because it talks about the importance of our fellowship here. Christians being with Christians and other fellowships too. It's not exclusive to us. It's where two true Christians gather together to worship and serve the Lord. It's like, and he explained it, and I can't, Andy's probably going to correct me at home, but because he heard it too. I, I won't get the names right, but there are four, I think there were four guys, three or four guys, and one of them passed away. And I don't know if Billy Graham was involved. But when somebody dies, and you know them, they're a good close friend, you're going to miss them, aren't you? Sorely miss them. And these men missed him, but they realized it was deeper than that. They realized that when they lost their friend, let's say there's four guys, right? When they lost Joe, they lost part of Ron, and they lost part of Steve, too. How's that? Ron and Steve, or whatever, the ones that survived. I'm getting the names mixed up. They're still with them. How did they lose part of them? Well, when Joe died, and Steve, you know, Joe used to say a joke, and Steve would respond to that joke. Steve, the way he laughed, only Joe could make him laugh that way, you know? Joe brought out something in Steve that only Joe could bring out. And so when Joe died, we not only lost Joe, we, we lost a part of Steve because that would no longer be brought out. I couldn't appreciate that because Joe wasn't around to bring it out. And it really spoke to me about us Christian fellowship. It's sweet that when one person is missing, we don't just miss them. We lose a part of each other because they're a part of us. That's what Christian fellowship, it gave me a new view of what Christian fellowship is all about. It's a unity that when we say, well, when one member suffers, we all suffer. Well, that's part of what it's talking about, you know. If through your life you know the Lord, and because of your love for the Lord and your service to the Lord, your appreciation for the Lord brings something about the Lord to my attention, if you're not around, I'm losing that appreciation for the Lord that I get from your appreciation for the Lord. And so you can see how coming together, you know, they have this illustration, you know, a coal taken out of the fire will cool off, but in the fire, the whole fire gets warmer. It's like that. So that's a goal you might want to have. Fellowship, faithful fellowship, to be here, that we might all appreciate God and one another, that we might be acting as a body, united, and see the glory of God in our midst. What goals will you make for this year? Write them down and determine not to be distracted from them. Be accountable to someone. 
Make your goals known. And if you're short on ideas about goals, ask somebody else what their goals are. Don't be afraid to borrow them. I won't use the word steal them because you're just borrowing them, right? <laughs> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much for how faithful you have been. You're always faithful, and thank you for helping us to recognize it. Throughout the year, you've provided for all our needs. Lord, you've kept us safe. Lord, you've preserved us. You continue to provide for us, and we give you thanks for all that you've provided through this last year. We think of how you've worked in the lives of some in our midst, bringing them to yourselves. We think of the encouragement that we experience seeing their zeal for you, their desire to grow. And Lord, we have great expectations for this next year. We only pray that we might not be a disappointment to you by not considering what you would have us to do in this next year. The goals that we make, Lord, let them be your goals for our lives. Make it clear to us, we pray and ask it in your name.